Would you take your Bibles? We want to worship the Lord in the reading of His Word. And we stand because our God has given us a Word that is sufficient, necessary, clear, authoritative, and without error. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 18, 18 verses 1 through 15. If you need a pew Bible, it's in page 14. And if you need a Bible, you can take the pew Bible. We want you to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. Hear the Word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet, And rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come and We are humbled to be under your word, to be able to hear a word from you. As your word is preached, it is you who is speaking to us. And I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with the truths of this passage and the wonderful promise that nothing, nothing that you promise is too hard for you to fulfill. Lord, may our faith be strengthened as it feeds on the word. May you use our lead pastor as he preaches the word. And Lord, may we leave here as we have already said that it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word 
and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open here in Genesis chapter 18 as we are resuming our series on the life of Abraham. God, a promise and a life of faith. And as we do, I want to begin with this question in mind. Who is the most important person you have ever had over to your home for dinner? Was that person rich? Was, a, was that person powerful? Perhaps that person was a famous athlete or celebrity, and I would venture to say probably none of those things, since most of us don't hobnob with famous people. So more than likely, the most important person you've hosted for dinner in your home is, is probably someone the world would never consider impressive. Just imagine with me, though, if someone important really did come to dinner at your house. Maybe like the President of the United States. One couple looked back on 1978 when President Jimmy Carter was their house guest. Janet Olson, 78, still remembers standing on her front porch on May 4th, 1978, and watching in awe as the presidential motorcade pulled in front of her northeastern Portland home, bringing with it an extremely unusual overnight guest, President Jimmy Carter. The president, who sometimes stayed in regular people's homes instead of hotels when he traveled, slept that night in the couple's bedroom while they slept in a guest room. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is really happening, she said. And we lay awake most of the night thinking, this is really strange. The president of the United States is sleeping in our bedroom. The president's promise to listen to locals brought him to the Olson's house, where he carried his own suitcase and made his own bed. I hope I haven't caused too much of a disturbance, he told the Olson family, as seven motorcycle policemen two patrol cars and a secret service vehicle parked in the street behind him. Janet Olson and her husband Paul said they, they weren't surprised to find President Carter conversational and warm. The fact that you're entertaining the president in your home is, is kind of intimidating, though, Janet said. But as soon as he entered our home, he was easy to be around. The couple welcomed President Carter with a, a Pacific Northwest-inspired dinner that included... Salmon, rhubarb cobbler, and wine. After dinner, their two children, Kristen and three-year-old Aaron, picked out a bedtime story they wanted the president to read to them, the emperor's new clothes. The symbolism of the moment wasn't lost on Paul and Janet Olson, who watched as one of the most powerful people in the world lay on his side and read to their two young children the story of a pompous ruler who had lost touch with his subjects in reality. Kristen, now 49 years old, said the president's warmth always stuck with her. She says, looking back, I feel like he was maybe not the greatest president, but really great person. I think of him as a down-to-earth real guy, a real president, not a politician. And he was for the people, and he wanted to know his people. I'm sure... It would be a memory of a lifetime to host the president in your home. But just imagine if you hosted the Lord in your home for dinner. 
That's what we see here in the first part of Genesis 18. Now, as you imagine hosting the president of the Lord, how many of you that would send you into a panic attack? Yes, it would my wife. Yes, it would. Ask her. No, I, I, I don't know why I sidetracked there. Anyways, this is what we see here in Genesis 18. God comes to dinner at Abraham's tent, except his visit is completely unexpected. And it takes Abraham by surprise. And so the obvious question is, why? Why did God come to dinner at Abraham's tent? And let me just tell you from the outset, it was much more than just a social visit to pass the time of day away. There's the purpose in God's unexpected visit. There's a reason for it, and I want to share that reason with you up front. It's here in the top of your notes coming up on the screen. God comes to dinner to overcome the limitations of Abraham and Sarah's faith by announcing his greatness and his goodness. In fact, these are the two main truths of this chapter. What we see here in Genesis 18 is the truth, number one, God is great, and then we see another truth, that God is good. And both of these truths are emphasized by two questions. The first question is asked by God himself, which we heard already read to us in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that is no. Why? Because God is great. And then the second question is asked by Abraham in regards to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah later on in the chapter, verse 25, where it says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And there's Abraham's question. And the answer is, yes, God is just. God only and always does what is just. Why? Because God is good. And so those are the two main points of this chapter. And next Sunday, we will focus on the this, this second point, God's goodness. Today, I want you to see here God's greatness. But in order to see this particular truth, we need to see it in context in which it is given. God comes to dinner. Now, this story of God coming to dinner can be divided into two different scenes, and both are totally unexpected. And so notice the first scene here. We have an unexpected visitation by the Lord. This first scene is a combination of grace and groceries. Verse 1 tells us the Lord appeared to Abraham. And so this is an unexpected visitation by the Lord himself. But Abraham has no idea it was the Lord at this point in time. He doesn't figure this out, become fully aware of it until later on in his visit. And that's because the Lord appeared in disguise, which sent Abraham in haste as a dinner host. And so notice this, what we see here. Abraham saw three men all of a sudden standing in front of him. One was the Lord and the other two were his angelic messengers. We learn in verse 1, that this unexpected visit by the Lord happened, notice, by the oaks of Mamre, as he, that is Abraham, sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So that's what's going on. That's the context in which the Lord visits. By now, Abraham, at this stage of his life, he's old and he is wealthy. 
And on this particular day, the morning chores were complete. His servants or workers had returned to their tents. And, and it's that time of day when everyone wanted to just kind of relax and doze off for an afternoon nap. And so imagine, if you will, the scene. Abraham is now sitting at the door of his tent. He's, he's resting in the shade under a tree. And perhaps he had nodded off because we're now told in verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And then notice Abraham's immediate response in verses 2 and 3. When he saw them, look what he does. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So question, who are these three men standing in front of Abraham? Now, we, we here now, we know Abraham's guests were the Lord and two angels. And the reason we know this, because if you go to verse 22 here in the same chapter, it even says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So we know immediately one of them is the Lord, because the first verse also tells us that. But if you go to chapter 19, verse 1, we read, the two angels came to Sodom. So that's who they are. But at first, Abraham had no idea who they were. After all, these men probably didn't look any different from any other travelers passing through the land of Canaan. But from the beginning, there are hints that these three men were no ordinary visitors. Like when Abraham looked, and and seemingly out of nowhere, there are three men standing in front of him. Abraham didn't see them approaching. He, he doesn't hear them approaching. They were just simply standing in front of him. Abraham also sensed that these visitors must be honored when he, he bowed to them and he addressed one of them, sensing that one is probably the leader. He addressed them as Lord. It seems Abraham has his suspicions that this may be a, a special visitation from the Lord. Now, it's, it's at this point that the story takes on a a true Middle Eastern flavor. Now, here in Kansas City, if you saw three men standing near your house, you might ignore them. More than likely, you would keep an eye on them. But you certainly wouldn't run to them and bow down to them and invite them into your home. But in that culture and in that day, most people extended travelers' hospitality. And that's why Abraham ran to meet them and invited them to stay for dinner. And so Abraham insisted on showing hospitality to his guests. And this needs to be seen in contrast with the lack of hospitality that is shown to the two angels in the city of Sodom in chapter 19. In other words, what the author of Genesis, Moses, is doing, he's setting this up for us. He's anticipating us reading not only chapter 18, but 19. And he's showing us a contrast of hospitality. We're meant to see the contrast that is coming. This is how you treat your guests. And even more importantly, this is how you ought to treat the Lord and his two messengers. But when these two angels come to Sodom, as we will see next Sunday, things will be far different. In fact, the only person who has, was willing to take these two angels in was 
Lot. Otherwise, if you were a visitor in Sodom, you would just sleep in the city square. You would sleep out in the open. But Lot took them in. And so in contrast and hospitality could not be more different between Abraham and the people of Sodom. And so second of all, we see next Abraham's response to all this. Abraham hosted the Lord and the two angels for dinner. And he did so with humility, urgency, and generosity. Abraham even begs permission to lavish hospitality on his three guests. Notice Abraham's humility, though, first in verses 4 and 5. He says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. And so suddenly in the drowsy afternoon, everything kicks into high gear and notice his urgency here by Abraham and and even his generosity in verses 6 through 8 where it says Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham then ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so all of a sudden, this morsel of bread became this huge feast, and all of this is done with, with urgency, it's done with humility, and, and most of all, it is done with generosity. In fact, three times this word quick is used to describe Abraham's urgency. In verse 6, Abraham says it went, he went quickly into the tent to Sarah where he tells her to quickly make some bread. And then in verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd. He picked out a calf for his servant to prepare it quickly. And so this scene is filled with fervent action and haste. But don't miss Abraham's generosity here. He is generous in both quantity and quality. In fact, it says three sias of fine flour is used. And you're like, so, big deal, what's three sias? Well, that's equals to about six gallons of flour. In other words, this is a ton of food for three guests, three men. Abraham picks out the best calf he can find, tender and good calf for his guests, and then he throws in some curds and milk. I enjoyed how Ray Stadman describes this scene. He pictures it this way when he writes, the curds were like cottage cheese, probably served as a fresh fruit salad with figs and grapes stirred in. Milk was kept cool and fresh by lowering it down the well in an earthen container. So Abraham probably served his guests of cool, extra-rich milk then he served fire-roasted veal, the most tender and mouth-watering meat of all, and Sarah set out baskets of fresh, hot bread. And so finally, by the end of verse 8, after several hours of preparation, Abraham is able to relax a little bit as his three guests enjoyed his hospitality. And you go to the New Testament, and there the writer of Hebrews even commemorates Abraham's hospitality here in this scene, in Hebrews 13, 2, where it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Such was Abraham's experience right here. The Lord personally accepts Abraham's hospitality. He partakes of his provision. He sits under his tree and he eats a meal with him. And as one commentator puts it, there was the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, eating at the table of his servant. And so Abraham really is God's friend. The Lord is not distant, but loves to be near his people. He is the sociable God. He is awesome, but not stuffy. He is the Lord who draws near. And so this unexpected by the Lord, it's nothing short of a covenantal meal that he has with his servant, Abraham. In fact, what's interesting, this is the only place in Scripture before the incarnation of Jesus Christ where, where the Lord ate a meal with a human being. So just think about it for a minute. God came to dinner at Abraham's tent. Kent Hughes writes, This meal with Abraham was an exercise of spiritual intimacy. To dine with God at the table was and is the ultimate honor any mortal could have in this world. And indeed, God demonstrates his, his covenant love with us by eating and drinking with us. Think about it. You can trace this all the way through the scriptures, beginning with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve began in the Garden of Eden where they did what with God? They had communion with God, where they ate with God, according to Genesis 2.16, until they were banished from the garden because of their disobedience. God held a covenantal meal with Abraham's descendants when he ratified his covenant with them at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24. And then you come to the New Testament. In Jesus Christ himself, he spent much of his ministry doing what? Eating and drinking with people. And then before his death, he ate with his disciples and he established an ongoing covenant meal of bread and wine, which we know as the Lord's Supper. And so table fellowship with God and his people, especially during the Lord's Supper, it celebrates for us the peace that we have with God Almighty, as well as the peace that we are able to have with one another because of our peace with God. By these meals, and specifically table fellowship around the Lord's Supper, we anticipate the eternal feast we will enjoy at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we eat and drink with the Lord forever and ever. Revelation 19.9. Now, Abraham, at this point in his life, he needed the assurance of this particular covenantal meal. And he needed this assurance to, to help him and Sarah overcome the limitations of their faith. You see, it was during this unexpected visitation that God will do something. And specifically, God came to announce his greatness to Abraham and Sarah in anticipation of fulfilling his promise in their lives. And this brings us to the second scene when God comes to dinner. And what we find in this scene is an unexpected conversation with the Lord. This unexpected visitation by the Lord was not just for Abraham. It was also for his wife, Sarah. 
which now begins this unexpected conversation that the Lord has. The Lord and two angels had not come to eat a nice meal, though they may have enjoyed that. Listen, they come for a purpose. They come to deliver a message, a message that will stretch Sarah's faith beyond belief. And so according to verse 9, look at it. They said to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Where is Sarah your wife? Now ponder that for a moment. How did they know his wife's name? It's possible that people have heard about Abraham and Sarah, but they haven't heard about their new names that God just gave them in chapter 17. You see, only God and Abraham knew that Sarah is her new name and that the Lord had just recently given to her. And so this is perhaps the aha moment for Abraham when he now became fully aware that his visitors were not ordinary men. They know his wife's name. And suddenly all the lights went on. This is the Lord he is talking with. Nevertheless, the focus of this scene is specifically on Sarah, who was inside the tent but could hear everything. You see, God was having this conversation with Abraham, but he was doing so for the benefit of Sarah, who he knows is in the tent and is overhearing the conversation. So notice this after-dinner conversation. Notice what transpires here. The Lord brought Sarah to the end of her strength by announcing that she will have a son this time next year. We see this in verse 10. Look at it with me. The Lord said, and he's speaking this again to Abraham, but for Sarah's benefit. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And so what we have here is a reaffirmation of what God had already told Abraham in chapter 17. This time, however, Abraham didn't laugh about it. This promise of a son is now moving from general and far off to very specific and close at hand. Abraham and Sarah will have a son when? This time next year, God says. This was the reason for the Lord's visit to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord here set a date for the long-awaited birth of their son. This time next year. In fact, God said, the way Moses records it for us, God says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. In other words, God is, by saying it that way, he is driving home the absolute certainty of his promise here. But such a certainty was a test of faith for Sarah, who was listening in the tent directly behind the Lord. But what Sarah heard, oh, it was oh too much for her to believe. So we find that Sarah laughed in unbelief at the Lord's announcement as a result of doubting God's greatness. Now the question becomes, why did Sarah laugh? And Moses gives us a little bit of a commentary here. 
he adds in verse 14. This is not part of the conversation that God has with Abraham. It's an added commentary to set up and give us insight to why Sarah laughed. Notice what it says in verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Moses is telling us, he's reminding us that not only was Sarah barren her entire life, but now she was 90 years old and postmenopausal. In other words, her days of childbearing was in the rearview mirror. And she didn't need baby diapers. She was at the age of wearing diapers herself. And so this promise that she would be a mother next year, let me tell you, it was unimaginable. It was absurd. And so according to verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, this is a hopeless laughter. Sarah laughed to herself and thought of herself as this decrepit old woman married to an old man. As Charles Swindoll writes, put in today's terms, she thought, I'm no spring chicken, I'm more like a dying hen, and he's no Italian stallion anymore. Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. In fact, this term that is used, that she uses for herself, worn out, That is a term that was used to describe clothes that become ragged and shabby with colors faded and fabric worn thin. That's how Sarah thought of herself. Too old, too ragged to be worthy of such pleasure. And whether that pleasure was the pleasure of being a mother or even the pleasure of sexual intimacy with her husband again, Sarah didn't believe she could enjoy either of those pleasures at her age. At 90 years of age, Sarah saw the idea of becoming pregnant as unthinkable. The delights of motherhood simply don't come to a 90-year-old woman. And so this is a biological impossibility. And notice, it isn't like the odds are just stacked against her of getting pregnant. It's not like her odds are are 10,000 to 1 at her age. No, there are are no earthly odds here of Sarah getting pregnant. In other words, it is a biological impossibility of her getting pregnant. And so Sarah laughed to herself in unbelief. Why? Why? Why doubt God's greatness? Why doubt his power, and his promise here. Instead of focusing on the power of God, what does Sarah do? She is focused on the powerlessness of her body. You see, it's, it's one thing to believe that at some point in time in the future, God will give you a child. But it's quite another to fix your hopes on a, on a very specific date and then risk this cruel and bitter disappointment if the promise does not come to pass. And perhaps that's why she found it so hard to believe in this moment. She laughed to herself, not daring to hope that what God promised might be true. 
Maybe it might have been possible 10 or 15 years ago, but not now. Once upon a time in the past, she believed the Lord only to have her faith dashed on the jagged rocks of reality, but she wasn't going to fall for that promise again. She wasn't going to risk it. And so Sarah here, she appears to be what we might call this, this reluctant believer, like so many of us. Sometimes God's promises, they just seem to be too good to be true, right? I just can't believe in that. I, I believe in God, but I can't believe in that promise. Even this announcement of God's promise was, was initially unable to break through her skepticism. And so her response She cynically laughed at the thought of God's promise, the idea of it. But the next time, what's interesting, that Sarah laughs, her laughter will not be skeptical doubt, but from overwhelming joy at the birth of Isaac, whose name means laughter. And so, in some ways, God got the last laugh. All of this brings us to our third observation here where the Lord confronted Sarah's unbelief so that she will see from the perspective of God's greatness. Even though Sarah is hidden away inside the tent, laughing silently to herself, God hears and responds with amazing grace. Look how the Lord confronts Sarah's unbelief in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, obviously, this is really not a question because God knows the answer already, right? God knows that Sarah does not believe in his promise of a son is at all possible. Therefore, God now asks another question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And it's a rhetorical question. And And we are meant to say, in response to that question, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But let's be honest. Who here cannot sympathize with Sarah? Listen, we all can. We we can understand her skepticism, can we not? Especially when you look at all the reasons that she has not to believe. Legitimate reasons, biological reasons. And so God graciously, lovingly reaffirms his promise for Sarah's sake in the rest of verse 14 when he says, at the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, Sarah knows she's been caught by the Lord. But like a lot of us, she quickly tries to backtrack here in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, that is God, no, but you did laugh. Now, I think you would agree with me that it is a foolish thing to deny before the Lord that you laughed. What? Me? No, I didn't laugh, Lord. But in that instance, Sarah was now doused with the reality that God is all-knowing. Listen, we might be able to fool others, but you can never fool the unblinking, omniscient eye of God. Again, it's easy to pick on Sarah here. 
But if we're honest, we do the same thing, do we not? We think God doesn't see our sins. We think God doesn't even hear our sins. We think God is too busy with with all the bad stuff going in the world to pay attention to our lives and to our decisions and to our sins. But God knows. Listen, it is a foolish thing to stand before God and say, I didn't laugh. And God says, well, of course you did. But as so often is the case in our lives, what do we do? We compound one sin with another sin, just like Sarah did. You think just one more sin will get me out of this jam, but it never works out that way. And so let us learn from Sarah here. Don't convince yourself. Don't deceive yourself that one more sin is going to get you out of other sins. Don't try to cover up this sin with another sin. Sarah had a moment here when she could have simply said, Lord, you're right. I did laugh. I'm just having a really hard time believing your promise of a son at my age. It just doesn't seem possible. Instead, what does she do? She adds to the sin of unbelief, the sin of deception and lying. And she does it, we are told, out of fear. One commentator put it like this. Fear moves people to do things that are irrational and uncharacteristic of them. Adam hid because he was afraid of God. Abraham deceived because he was afraid of what the Egyptians might do to him. And now Sarah is afraid because she has challenged the authenticity of a divine promise and because she has irked a divine visitor. Isn't that true? When you're afraid, you do things out of character. And yet, please hear the good news that God is more gracious than we expect. God was gracious here in calling out Sarah's sin. God was gracious in reaffirming his promise to her. And so do not think about God this way. This is is not the response of a God who who just kind of watches from a distance, just waiting for us to mess up so that he can pounce on us and reprimand us in anger. No, this is the response of a God who, who loves his servants, who loves Abraham and Sarah just as he loves us. Listen, you don't have to be afraid to tell God the truth of how you feel. He already knows anyways. He knows all your doubts. He knows all your fears. He knows all your dreams. And, and when you just kind of spread them out on the table before him, He deals with them graciously as with a friend. Now, there are many, many lessons that we could apply from these two scenes. But I want us to zoom in specifically on one lesson. And it's the main point of this section here in chapter 18. And that is God is great. And because God is great, that means for us here today that faith faces the facts of life. Notice this. 
After facing the facts of life, Sarah needed to focus on the ultimate fact of God's greatness. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, please understand, God never calls us to deny reality. God never calls us to sweep reality under the rug or under the bed. Never calls us to deny reality. In fact, we need to face the facts of life. And the reality is some of those facts in our lives are not pretty. We are in difficult circumstances. We find difficult relationships. We find all kinds of problems and what all have you. And so God never calls us to deny reality. We are to face reality. We are to face the facts in our lives. But we are never to just focus on those facts and stop there. Rather, we need to to face those facts, those realities, and then look beyond them to focus on our God and his greatness. You see, Sarah, at this point in her life, she is consumed with the facts of her life. She's caught up in the reality of her old age. And she could not see beyond her worn-out old body to see God's greatness. And again, from a human standpoint, Sarah's reaction is understandable. But from God's viewpoint, nothing is impossible. And the Lord wants you and I to see that there may be a thousand reasons why it's impossible for Sarah to have a baby. But what does that matter in the face of God's greatness? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the point. That's that's the reason we are to see this here. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, don't think of God as he's a really great superhero or he's a real great action hero. This is is not like Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. And if you can hold your breath for three minutes and you can climb buildings and run like this and device crazy schemes and defuse the bomb, boy, this is really hard, but I, I think God can do it. No, 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 no. This is God we are talking about. This is God Almighty that we learned in chapter 17 who was called none other than El Shaddai. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is God Almighty. And he poses the question for us, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, this question is not just for Sarah's sake. This question is for all of us here this morning. This question is for you. This question is for you and for you. It's for you. This is God's question for all of us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And there is only one answer. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Now, in light of that, let me pose this question to you. What is your impossibility today? What is the obstacle in your life that is is so unthinkable that you either laugh in unbelief or you tremble in fear? The prophet Jeremiah found himself in an 
impossible situation when he prayed in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And the Lord then confirmed Jeremiah's prayer by answering him later on in verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? So what seems impossible with us is never too hard for the Lord. Now, there is no doubt. Things in your life, things in my life that seem utterly impossible, and you know what? They probably are impossible for you and to you. But do you believe that they are not impossible for God? That nothing is too hard for the Lord. At the same time, we need to be very careful here, lest you run out of here and think, oh, the message today tells me that my cancer will go away. I will have a child. I will get married, and all my dreams will come true. Listen carefully. The Lord's question here does not teach, nor does it suggest that that God will do anything impossible for you if you simply just exercise enough possibility thinking. Rather, it teaches that God will do what he has promised, though it seems impossible. So when we take this question and we apply it to our lives, we must be sure that we are connecting it with God's promises. And oh, do we have some incredible promises of God. We have the promise of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We have the promise of no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have the promise of new life in Jesus Christ. We have the promise of God's presence. We have the promise of his power in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We have the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. We have the promise that God will complete the work that he began in us. We have the promise that God will work all things together for our good and his glory for those who love the Lord. We have the promise of Christ's return. We have the promise of his kingdom coming on earth. And ultimately, we have the promise of dwelling with him in the new creation for all eternity. We have some incredible promises. And well, how can we be so sure of these promises? Again, I remind you what the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah in verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And that's exactly what God did for Sarah. It's also exactly what God did later on for another virgin, the mother of Jesus, Mary. When Jesus was born in another impossible situation. And so God's promises, listen to me, they are always surely even when the situation we find ourselves in shouts, no way. On the other hand, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, we, we so guard ourselves from disappointment, what do we stop doing? One, we stop praying for big prayers. And two, we stop believing that God really does do impossible things. And so we look 
at what we are facing in our lives, whether it's a relational problem, a financial problem, a health problem, or whatever problem you're facing, and we think this is never going to get better. It's impossible, but not for God. Listen, if God has you in an impossible situation at this moment in your life, it is for a purpose. It is to bring you to the end of your own strength and power so that you will now trust in God's promises. You will trust in his presence. You will trust in his power to do the impossible in your life. So remember the Lord's question here. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then trust in the only answer. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So I ask, what kind of God do you have? What is your God like? Do you have a God who is great? Or is your God too small? What kind of God have you given your life to? What kind of God do you trust? Listen, there is, there's nothing in your life today, there is nothing in our world today that is too hard for our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, thank you once again for your word. And thank you for your promises, all of which are true and we can count on because of your greatness. And so give us the grace to trust you even when facing impossible situations, believing that nothing is too hard for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.